0: I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles uh, again to the book of Genesis. Um, Today we're going to revisit chapter 1 again and zoom in on one important section, uh, and that section being verses 26 to 31. Uh, In a book called, uh, it's called Atomic Habits by a guy named James Clear, he tells the story of Victor Hugo. You guys know Victor Hugo, names sound a little familiar, well, if you've seen The Hunchback of Notre Dame, you can thank him for writing the story, or maybe you've read or seen Les Miserables, Uh, he's also responsible for writing that too. So, So he wrote some of the most iconic stories in history. But Victor Hugo had a big procrastination problem, which is really great news for me if I ever want to write iconic stories for history. Uh, but anyway, he almost never got his stories out because he was so bad at procrastinating. He actually he really liked socializing and entertaining other guests, so he was always kind of out and about or doing something other than working. But it was when he was facing like this impossible deadline that all the pressure was on him and he decided something needed to change. So this is what he decided to do. He got all of his clothes. Emptied all of his drawers, socks, underwear, got his pants out of his closet, shirts, belts. Locked him in a chest and gave them to his assistant. And told his assistants, don't give me my clothes back. So all he wore was this large shawl, this blanket. I guess he's naked or something, I don't know. But he's wearing this blanket so that he could not entertain any guests. He couldn't go out in public. All he could do was focus on writing. And after a few months of vigorous writing, he finished the hunchback of Notre Dame ahead of the deadline. It was precisely the restriction that gave Victor Hugo freedom. It was the the boundaries that gave him the freedom to write. Structure and order. That's what God has been doing all throughout chapter 1. He takes a chaotic, formless void and He brings life and order and structure to it. More specifically, life is found within the order that He brings. Fish thrive when they're in water, But when you take them out of the structure of water, they die. So to put it another way, life happens within the structure that God puts in place. That's where life happens. And that's exactly what's happening in our passage today. God creates male and female in His image. We're going to see this as we go on. But to be made in His image means we've been put within a structure. To be made in the image of God means we've been put within a framework. And that framework is relationship. You are designed to be in a relationship with the Almighty God. If you're human and you're in this room, that means You are designed to be in relationship. And that's what I want to explore. What it means to be image bearers within the structure of our relationship with God. So let's read Genesis chapter 1 starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. First, our relationship with God begins with divine affection. I want to focus on that first sentence in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This phrase brings the whole creation narrative from this barrel roll to this slow crawl. Up until this point, everything was, God said, let there be, and it was so. It's just done. There was nothing that's happening. But here in verse 26, there's deliberation. In virtually every movie you watch, it starts off slow, right? The deliberation happens at first, and then the action gets faster and faster and faster, and the pace quickens, but here, here the pace has been fast, but now slows down. Now there's quite a lot of debate about what is meant by God saying let us make man in our image. And I believe there are two correct and overlapping ways to look at this. The first way is to see this as a very early clue of the Trinity. And after 2,000 years of having the New Testament I can say, yeah, we can read the Trinity into this. Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you're Moses or the Israelites reading this in 1000 BC, it would have signaled something a little different. This is what's called divine counsel. You see, in the ancient Near East, the gods only made decision by shared power in a council. So the classic example is Zeus, all right? Zeus lives, Zeus and the gods live on Mount Olympus. And Zeus, the top dog, gives an order and it's either carried out or thwarted or changed by his pantheon of gods. Uh, so in the Iliad, if you read the Iliad, um, Zeus will give an order that a guy's life should be taken or he should be protected and like Athena or Hera is, is like, no, he needs to live, so they secretly try to go get another God's help and, and try to change the situation, that kind of thing. So that's that's what's happened. These, these councils of shared power, God's competing, jealousies, um, corruption, immorality, all that kind of stuff. And in fact, this idea of council actually appears in the Old Testament as well. So if you read Job 1, the, one of the strangest scenes ever, the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord, and Satan also came along with them. It's this, it's this really mysterious picture of divine counsel. And then Isaiah chapter 6, after healing Isaiah, God asks in a very similar way uh, to Genesis 1, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Right? In their minds, this is signaling this divine counsel. And the Bible is unapologetic that there are very powerful, angelic, spiritual, and demonic beings. Absolutely there are. But the Bible uses this language so that the difference would make it all the more clear that all decisions are God's decisions and all these other spirits are under His complete control. He doesn't... with them and see what they're going to do he confers and says this is what I've decided to do just like the rest of creation this is supposed to be another argument against all the other little g gods because God doesn't take counsel with other gods he takes counsel within himself and all other beings whatever they are are beheld to his sovereignty alone He doesn't wait for approval. He doesn't discuss it with anybody. The decision is his and not that of any other being. For the Israelite reading this, they would see that whatever counsel there may have been, there is one whose decision is sovereign and supreme. Lowell Handy, uh, he's describing the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, but he describes this whole thing this way. In short, he works alone. The concept of a pantheon or divine assembly assumed a distribution of power among many divine beings. The first commandment declared simply and unequivocally that Yahweh's power was absolute. Divine power was not distributed among other deities or limited by the will of the assembly. In so doing, it disenfranchises them, not merely by declaring that they should not be worshipped, it leaves them with no status worthy of worship. So why is all of this important? Because the creation of male and female as a maid in His image springs from the eternal depths of the heart of God Himself. Adam may have been made from the dust, but human beings have a heavenly origin. God created this not so that we will just serve Him as if He needed anything. God created first and foremost
1: as an act
0: of love. God didn't need a bunch of servants. God created a bunch of people who He could love and who would love Him in return. Michael Reeves wrote in his book on the Trinity, since God the Father has eternally loved His Son, It is entirely characteristic of Him to turn and create others that He might also love them. It is that the Father has always enjoyed loving another. And so the act of creation by which He creates others to love seems utterly appropriate for Him. We love because He first loved us. There's no spirit or angel, or demonic being that can thwart this. When God has decided to set His affection on His people, it is irrevocable and unchanging. So any proper understanding of a relationship with God must begin with the fact that God is the one who initiates. We do not have to get Him to come to us. His his being is such that His heart goes out to us before we ever utter a prayer. Before we ever come to Him. He's already inclined toward us. It begins with divine affection. In our house, we have different correctives. Depending on the creature that we're talking to. So, Willa, uh, is no. Say no. Uh, our dog, we say, bah. Uh, that's our trainer. Like, he wanted us to use a nice deep guttural, because apparently dogs don't understand that better. Uh, and for our cat, uh, we whistle. Uh, and, and hey, people say you can't hurt cats. I, I got really good at this, actually. Like, he, and he runs to his, his little room and stuff. And, Get back, or stop calling the furniture. Of course, she's old and fat and stubborn now. She doesn't respond as much. But I, I often get these correctives mixed up. So I often will find myself like, ah, Willa, bah, Willa. Like, no, wait, no, that's not her. She's not the dog. Or like trying to whistle at our dog. <laughs> like she doesn't, she's like, oh, he's playing. Like, no, it's like, it gets mixed up. And when it comes to our relationship with God, we, we get these parameters of our relationship mixed up too, don't we? We we like to confuse what our parameters are, but, but God has not just made any old creature. He made creatures in His image which gives us those parameters. So secondly, our relationship with God frames the divine image. And I'll explain what that means. Let's look at what God says about man and woman. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the question we want to ask is what does image of God mean? You'll find numerous uh, answers to that. I mean, does it mean we have morals? Uh, does it mean we have the capacity to know God? Is it like emotions that we feel that other animals can't? Well, guess what? Just like understanding the divine counsel helps us understand, not just Genesis, but parts of the Old Testament, uh, but also helps us understand what image and likeness would have meant to the Israelites as they read this. We have to get in their mindset. So it was a very common practice in the ancient Near East, uh, uh, and I'll use Egypt as an example, that um, the image of God was applied to the king, Pharaoh. So Pharaoh was called the image of the God, uh, which means he was um, representative of this God, and he he behaves the way that this God behaves, but he also rules on behalf of this God. So that's why uh, you have different kings setting up statues of themselves in the ancient Near East because it is their image that is ruling over that part of the world. Isn't this what makes the Bible remarkable? Because here comes Genesis that says every human being is made in the image of God. Not just kings. And the language used here of Adam and Eve and now every subsequent human is royalty. And specifically, those words I- image and likeness have very unique emphases. They're very similar but very unique. Image emphasizes the divine human relationship. That, that That in the image of God, we are to mirror and reflect and be in a right relationship with God. Whereas likeness means a human creation relationship. And likeness exercising dominion and rule over what God has entrusted to us. Peter Gentry explained it this way. As servant king and son of God, mankind will mediate God's rule to the creation in the context of a covenant relationship with God on the one hand and the earth on the other. Hence, the concept of the kingdom of God is found on the first page of Scripture. That's what it means. You see that He gives us the the command to have dominion because we're made in His likeness. And this... Right, The image of God is where we get our understanding of human rights. Like Christianity, our understanding of rights is because of this understanding. That every human being has equal dignity and worth. And this also informs how we treat creation. We don't trust creation. God has entrusted creation to us. When Americans were the first Travel to the moon in the 1960s. They did something very important, or pointed, I should say. Obviously, going to the moon itself is important. They did something very pointed. They planted a flag on the surface of the moon, didn't they? And it wasn't just uh, because we needed to do that or wanted to. It was to express dominion, wasn't it? We're the first to make it to the moon, and we're putting our flag up here. When a nation's flag flies over a region, it expresses control and dominance over it. God wants to populate the earth with billions of his image bearers who will reflect his rule and his character among the world. We're not kings who build statues of ourselves, God send us, sends us out as image bearers. We are his image. And this this understanding infuses us with purpose. Because you bag groceries as an image bearer of God. You pick up toys as a part of ruling God's creation. You plant a garden. You mow your grass. You, you knit a quilt. You wash dishes. All done as a part of your royal reign on God's behalf for his glory. Every menial task filled with purpose, divine purpose. But it's not as though God puts us here and leaves us to it. That's why, thirdly, our relationship with God flourishes under divine blessing. God creates the first humans and verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, the very first words that human beings heard was blessing. Favor, pleasure, the posture of God toward humans is one of blessing. This is God's posture toward His people. Sin disrupted blessing, sure. Yeah, absolutely, it brought curse, but sin did not change God's desire to bless. This is important because if sin alters God's desire to bless, then who is left to get it back? Right? Can, can we humans get God's blessing back? No. But that's so often what we believe, just even as Christians. Like, if if I just obey enough, God will love me. Or, or if I love God enough, He will bless me. Or if I'm a good Christian, I, I can get God to do good to me, or probably more common is if I'm a good Christian, I can keep God loving me. But that's not it at all. We don't obey for blessing. We obey because of blessing. Blessing is the foundation and source for true obedience. That's why God blesses and then gives the command to multiply and flourish and subdue. Blessing precedes obedience. Blessing empowers obedience. Blessing transforms obedience. and Duncan said of this verse that the obedience is not a condition for God's love. It is the sphere in which they enjoy God's love. Here's how you can image me and here's how you can supremely enjoy me. Life within parameters of relationship. This is why my prayer is so often that there's nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less because He loves me perfectly in Christ. I pray it so often because I believe the opposite so often. I can't pray enough to make you love me more. I can't repent enough of sin. I can't love you enough. And my disobedience doesn't make you love me less, but because of Jesus, you love me perfectly. A relationship with God cannot flourish if He is landlord. If He's cosmic police, ready to write you up every time you're Guilty or you stumble. Our relationship with God can only flourish under His blessing. His blessing. Not only that, but finally, our relationship with God endures with divine provision. The passage closes with God giving Psalm 104 depicts God feeding all creatures with with His caring hand. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. God is the source of all provision who meets all that we need. You may have bought your clothes off the store shelves, but God is the one who gave them to you. The baker may have made it, but God gave you that donut you had for breakfast. God gave you the house that you're living in. He provides your dog with food, even though you might be the one putting it into their bowl. And He feeds the birds who are outside your window. Everything is sustained by God because God is constantly providing for them. Listen, God is a glad parent who loves to provide. Providing is hard for us sometimes. Sometimes we get tired of providing. We reach the end of our ropes, we get tired of it, we get frustrated, but God God loves to provide. He's a glad parent. This is exactly the problem that we run into because we look everywhere else for provision right in fact God's generosity here by giving them every tree sets the stage for when he prohibits them from eating from the one tree And what do we end up doing we reject his generosity to every other tree we just want the one that we can't have and this becomes a problem throughout the Bible Abraham doubts God's provision and tries to make the promised child happen through Hagar Israelites doubt God's provision, so they complain and grumble against and him constantly. David doubts God's provision and sleeps with Bathsheba. This is why trust is so intrinsic to a relationship, and especially a relationship with God. You, you can't flourish in a relationship where there's no trust. They're not giving room for the relationship to breathe or to have life. the same with our relationship with God. It flourishes with His provision and our trust in His provision. Even those times when we can't possibly see any way that God is doing any good, in this situation we trust because He is always doing 10,000 things that we cannot see. me, Mal, went through this. When we're really struggling with not being able to have kids like how can god be good because he's not giving us this very good gift but little did we know how much he was doing and now we have will that's why our relationship with god endures with his provision. But listen, I don't want to leave you with the impression today that this is some generic, oh God bless you. Or some generic, just like, oh God loves you. That because we're under sin, and because we're under sin, we're under curse. We, we, we can enjoy God's blessing. But we're only capable of earning the curse of hell. You should be condemned. For lying and, and pride and hate and rage and drunkenness and sexual morality and lust and trusting in yourself and disobedience and slander. We can only earn condemnation every single day of our lives. And the only escape is Christ. Jesus is God's blessing and God's provision. Blessing only happens in Christ. God will not bless apart from Christ. Blessing comes through God's provision of Jesus. And the only way to be secure in God's love is in Jesus Christ. It's the only way to be secure in His love. That prayer that I was talking about earlier, you can only pray that if you're in Christ. Otherwise, there is no security. Like, I can't tell you that you are secure unless you're trusting in Jesus. So it only happens in Jesus. It only comes in Jesus. And it happens freely. In Jesus, we meet God. God's eternal abundant desire to bless and to rescue you from the curse of sin and hell. God blesses you with Christ. You don't have to be in a certain place. You don't have to repent of a certain sin. He gives you Jesus because you're a sinner. need to receive Him. Receive Him by faith. His provision for you, His blessing upon you. So I want to ask you, have you received Christ? Have you received Him? Because if not, receive Him today. Do not go another day under the curse of sin, but enter into God's blessing. Let's pray. Father God, we do everything that we can to thwart your blessing. You blessed us in the beginning, but we thwarted that by choosing sin. You bless us repeatedly, but we thwart it by sin. You will not be thwarted. You brought the ultimate blessing of Your Son into this world to be the Savior and the hope of all of humanity. To save Your image bearers. Because in the beginning You set Your affection upon us. So Father, may we receive Your provision, may we receive Your blessing in Christ by faith. Help us to receive Him. Let us not hold on to sin. Let us not hold on to condemnation. But to find our freedom in Christ. All mercy, all grace is Yours. And may it rain down upon us. In the name of Jesus.